Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! And good day. Welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, Today we are covering... Um, a unique story. Um, you aren't reading it everywhere yet. Um, it was broken by primarily by the LA Blade, and um, it is kind of a story of oppression and bigotry. And it also begs the question: in a lot of these venues where uh, different aspects of LGBTQ rights are being um, brought to the front, on what what does the discussion look like? Does, do people who are anti-gay actually get a turn to present their misinformation and, you know, are rights up for debate? Do we really get to debate the rights of each other? Um, so that's part of the theme of today. Um, the story itself uh, is, takes place in Minnesota, And it started at the beginning of the school year. Um, At that time, um, an LGBTQ rights organization out front Minnesota um, presented uh, to the Becker School District Board. Um, They and the thrust of their presentation was LGBTQ students, um, their rights and concerns they had about Um, equity, equality, and inclusion um, in the district schools. So, you know, they brought this concern, presented it. Um, They were not making a case arguing whether LGBTQ students existed or any of that. Well, few of the community members were bent out of shape because they did feel that LGBTQ students apparently don't exist um, uh, in reality, and they demanded, quote-unquote, equal time. And the board then invited a group called the Minnesota Child Protection League. And don't be fooled by the name. The name is, has nothing to do with child protection. It has to do with um, anti-LGBTQ bias. And it is, in fact, listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an anti-LGBTQ hate group. Um, so that was the group that they invited to present, quote, unquote, the other side. When that group came to present, um, the room was filled mostly with people who didn't agree with them. They were pro-LGBTQ. Um, quite a few of them were students and um, adults involved with the school. And throughout the presentation, um, as it was pretty offensive rhetoric, um, it drew crowds and chants from, or chants and boos from the crowd. Um, so now the uh, MCPL uh, is creating almost a witch hunt. Um, there's a mandatory request that was filed by a local attorney um, who, who was part of the ones who addressed the school board um, to um, find out 
what teachers did or said to students or, you know, basically a, a deep dive into oppression um, in, within the school of people who were at the meeting protesting um, and offended by that group. So today we're going to talk to uh, Chris Kane of the LA Blade, who um, is covering the story, and we're going to talk to Aaron and maybe some others who are students at the school um, and find out their perspective. But first, I'm going to bring on Brody Levesque, um, who is the editor of the LA Blade and the co-host of this show. Brody, how are you doing? Hey, Rob. Uh, good afternoon to everyone across the United States, the world, and anyone who is listening to our show. Um, last week and a half to two-week period has been particularly trying, um, mainly because of the fact that we're looking at just blatant racism. We are looking at attacks on you know, not only just our community, but on the black community. Uh, of course, there was a highly publicized uh, shooting in a predominantly black neighborhood uh, at a top supermarket in Buffalo, New York, that killed 10 and wounded uh, numerous others. Um, the thing that really is probably the most shocking about all of this is just the shrug of the shoulders that we're starting to see as the absolute normal response from Republicans uh, and from people on the right. Um, this past weekend, simultaneous with the situation in Buffalo was going on, a group of middle school students in Stewart, Florida, mind you, these are grade 7, grade 8, so what, 12, 13-year-old boys, had an art class project. And they created two-foot, three-dimensional letters, and they decorated their letters. And then it formed a word, and they stood in the courtyard of their middle school in the um, Martin County School District there in Stewart. Very proudly took a picture of what they created. And all the letters, some of which were decorated like watermelons, a couple like probably fried chicken or cornbread. One was blood red, and the other one was uh, kind of like jail bars spelled out the N-word, and, of course, social media lost its collective mind. That wasn't all. Today, my colleagues at NBC News reported that there was a school in Cincinnati, Ohio, a high school, and they have these machines that the kids use uh, in between classes to fill up their water bottles. Uh, so instead of drinking fountains, you've got these dispensers that you put your bottle in there, dispenses, filtered cold water, and away you go. And these high school students decided that they would add a couple of warnings to their machines. On one, they posted colored only, and on the other, they posted white only, which, of course, is a direct throwback to the racist policies of the Jim Crow era in the American South, which is why, you know, the Civil Rights Movement uh, was so strong to undo all of that. And that was the whole reason for the fight. Today, I learned of a case of racism against an Asian-American candidate in Harris County, Texas. He's running for a county commissioner's seat uh, in Harris County, which is the city of Houston, for those of you that aren't familiar with that part of Texas. His opponent in the primary runoff 
put an ad up that distorted his eyes, nose, lips, then whitewashed his skin. And I spoke with the candidate, his name is Ben Chow, earlier today, and he noted that, you know, that kind of, you know, depiction of an Asian American and Asian follows such a long history of doctoring images of people of color to make them look angry or menacing, reinforcing negative stereotypes that have been peddled about Asian Americans in particular in the U.S. for more than a century. Um, His campaign opponent responded on Twitter. Uh, She identifies herself as a native Texan, proud Latina, and a Democrat. Her response was shame on Ben Chow. Rather than answering for his famatory lies, he's spreading even more lies. Well, the case of the matter is is that Ben and the Victory Fund had made so much noise about this attack ad that her campaign was forced to take it down. Rather than acknowledge a mea culpa, they instead ran an excuse that it was a graphic designer that did that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, completely ignoring the, you know, racial overtones. You know, these are the types of stories that, unfortunately, Rob, I really, really hate reporting. But the thing of it is, they're they're no longer the exception. In today's, you know, news world, this is the rule. And this is what we're up against. And it also crosses over uh, into the area that we're going to be discussing today, particularly right. with our transgender, uh, you know, community. So that's well, kind Brody, of a big bummer. But yeah, I want to ask you where it. The thing about these stories that, especially the first two that I find particularly shocking, is that it is kids doing it. Um, you know, and obviously kids bring in what they learn at home, but um, those are, are pretty outlandish throwbacks, I mean, to, um, you know, just horrific um, anti-black bigotry. Um, where, where is that coming from? What, what, is, what was the motivation and what, what was the nature of these kids, do you know? Well, I can tell you from the conversations I've had, particularly about the middle school in Florida, as you know, Governor DeSantis has signed a series of laws, uh, including one law that essentially erases what the Republicans call critical race theory and tries to shift the blame on race relations. And the entire state of Florida, that conversation is ongoing. And the truth of the matter is, and and anyone will tell you, that the Americans have had you know, a problem with racism for a very long time. Whether or not Americans want to accept it, there is institutionalized racism in this country. And now it's been unleashed and it's back to being acceptable. Uh, You know, we're in a throwback almost to where the country was in the early 1960s when you still had members of the Klan running around murdering civil rights workers, burning crosses and wearing sheets. Um, and it was accepted. You know, people tend to forget that interracial marriage uh, was only codified into law in Loving v. Virginia some, what, 50 years ago by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1968. You know, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which unfortunately have also been watered down by Congress and the courts, has only been around for maybe, I don't know, 55 years, 1964 that 66 in that range. So what we're seeing here is a resurgence 
of that kind of hatred and that kind of vitriol. And quite frankly, a lot of it and the white supremacist movement has been amplified by online groups that have absolutely no form of oversight at all whatsoever. And quite frankly, I'm going to pin the tail on the biggest jackass of them all, and that was Donald Trump. Yeah, he literally kicked open Pandora's box, and away we go. And anyone in media or anybody in the progressive uh, left trying to counter these arguments is immediately accused of pushing critical race theory, fake news, and in Florida in, in, Florida in particular. Now, that part of Cincinnati, uh, where this other incident took place, uh, Cincinnati sits literally right across the Ohio River from Covington, Kentucky, okay? And Covington has been a hotbed of problems with racism. If you'll remember, there was that whole debacle over that Covington Catholic school that disrespected that Native American in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and there was a lawsuit, the Washington Post covered it, and the kid ultimately won, and it was all about, you know, his right to make comments that were quite frankly borderline racist. And this is simply and truthfully, you know, a fact of life. Racism is resurging, white nationalism is resurging, and, and I hate to say this, but it's just not the United States. This is a global phenomenon. But here in the United States, it's accentuated and amplified by the vitriol that we're seeing being basically levied against not just the black Americans, but the queer community and, and the Asian community. Yeah. And it is, it's not a majority. I, you know, I need to point this out, that I don't think that we have a majority of people doing it. But what we do have is a well-funded, politically connected, politically powerful minority that is supported by these Christian nationalist types and these and these Christian fascists or Christo fascists is what I call them. And and this is their narrative and this is their theme. And at the end of the day, what you're seeing, especially with these Christian preachers, is no different, okay, than their direct linear, you know, ancestors that were, you know, collecting around courthouses in the nineteen twenties as Negroes were being lynched. And there were, you know, Baptists and other ministers in the crowds, you know, cheering it on. And it's God's will. Right. You know, right. not much has changed. So this is what we're seeing. And in Florida, you know, there, the school board is reacting, I think, appropriately. They're outraged. But you pointed out the number one fact, okay, that we've seen in each and every one of these stories, whether it's anti-gay or anti-black or anti-Asian, it starts at home. And quite frankly, there are some seriously deeply flawed, nasty, okay, white folk that are driving this. And Florida is the hotbed for it. You know, until people are willing to take the accountability factor in, I mean, the Karen phenomenon that we saw on social media during the pandemic, especially during the days of the lockdown, you know, which was amplified by their sense of white privilege and entitlement, you know, it's like a cancer and it is spread. And, you know, I had a United States senator who I will keep confidential their name talk to me earlier today, and they are genuinely concerned that the United States is on the tipping point, okay, of a potential third civil war. And it's a reasonable, reasonable because of the polarity and what those of us in the media refer to as the balkanization 
of the American nation. Now, granted, it's not the majority, but unfortunately, you've got people, okay, in the minority that are rich, they're powerful, they're white, they're entitled, and they're Christian fascist, and they're leading this narrative. And so when you have six white boys in a middle school, you know, spelling out that horrible word, putting it on social right. media, not as a joke, but because they believe it because they're getting it from their parents, Rob, yeah, you're right. It starts at home. Wow, that's a big problem. So let's shift our gear to our gaze to Minnesota and the story at hand. Um, I gave an overview at the top of the show. Brody, is there anything you wanted to add before we bring um, Chris and Aaron on? Well, this story was first brought to me um, about two months ago. Uh, a group in Minnesota reached out uh, to the Los Angeles played uh, and wanted to make sure that the story was getting out there. The story was referred to us uh, actually by a dear friend of mine, uh, Tammy Auberg. Tammy uh, had lost her son, 16-year-old Justin, to suicide uh, during the pandemic in the Anoka Hennepin School District, um, which was fueled by anti LGBTQ bullying, harassment, rhetoric, and also the same groups that these folks now in Becker are having to put up with that uh, the kids were protesting against. Uh, so Tammy uh, gave me uh, the story. Uh, my, my staff and I have been reporting on it. Uh, Chris is carrying on you know, with a much more in-depth article, which will be published uh, probably within the next week or so. But it's, it's a dive into an area where most people don't understand just how critical uh, it is. That particular part of Minnesota was at one time represented in the United States Congress by Michelle is a Christian fascist nutcase. Okay. Uh, her husband uh, was running a clinic in White Cloud, Minnesota, <coughs> offering conversion therapy. Uh, as a matter of fact, right. a friend of our show and our friend John Becker with Truth Wins Out, actually went and busted the Bachman Clinic for doing that. Minnesota traditionally has had some problems with anti-gay activity, but it's not the entire state. But there are entire vast wads of the state where, again, we're looking at the same minority I was literally just speaking about, okay, that are doing the exact same thing, and this is exactly what the problem is. So, you know, here we are 10 years or more past Justin's suicide, we're in a school district next to it, and again, you know, we're running into the same kind of problems. And it's the same people that are driving this. Um, as a matter of fact, two of the speakers at the uh, assembly uh, about two or three weeks ago, about a month ago, uh, that gave the alternative presentation are the exact same people that led the fight in the Anoka Hennepin uh, school district to kind of clamp down on LGBTQ rights there. So there's a history in this part of Minnesota for that. Um, right. And the problem, quite frankly, is, Rob, that as we learned from the suicide cluster uh, in the Anoka Hennepin School District, which cost us the lives of nine children um, in 2010, starting with Justin in July, uh, you know, there, there's real world impact to this kind of bigotry. And there's real world impact to this kind of, you know, quite frankly, naked hate. The, the right. idea that there is an alternative presentation is just wrong. And I, I'm going to let Chris pick up the story from there because uh, this is his. He's well, picking I, up I, on I it. One, one, yeah, I have one question for you before we go to Chris. Um, so the 
this group, the Minnesota Child Protection League, quote, unquote, yep. um, has <laughs> been designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an LG, anti-LGBTQ plus hate group. What does it yep. take to qualify as such with the Southern Poverty Law Center? The Southern Poverty Law Center defines any group like that as being responsible for spreading deceptive lies about LGBTQ individuals. Um, one of the lies that that group itself spread, we saw that uh, during the Anoka Hennepin case, was that, you know, grooming uh, is a problem with the gay community. If you talk about gay people, then you're just grooming children. You know, the theory that they've got is that the gay community doesn't reproduce, they recruit. I mean, that's an ages old problem. But in the case of these groups, you know, they put it on steroids. The other part of it, too, is that they absolutely will only recognize what they call biological truth, that there are only two genders, which is not true. And then they will go in and actually lie about it. Um, and so what the Southern Poverty Law Center does is they take and track all of these groups and the lies and the propaganda and the deception. And then they weigh against, you know, basically against the reality check. Um, virtually every group that has been labeled by the SPLC as a hate group uh, has said something that's just completely egregiously false about the community. And this group in Minnesota uh, are among the worst for that. Right. Okay, great. Okay, um, so I want to welcome to the show um, reporter Chris Kane from the Los Angeles Blade, Aaron Deering. Uh, Aaron is uh, one of the students that is affected in the story. Um, hi, how are you guys doing? Hi, Rob. Thanks so much. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Aaron, we've got you on as well? Yeah, I'm right here. Hi. Hi. Okay, good. Just want to make sure we didn't lose anybody. Um, Chris, let's start with you. Um, so we've talked around the story. Take us back a little bit to the beginning, to the original outset of it when um, out front Minnesota uh, felt the need to present to the, the school board. What was that about? Um, so my understanding is that this was a decision on which the board members voted, and they voted uh, to, to entertain and, and hear this presentation by the Minnesota Child Protection League. Um, Brody's, the discussion you had with Brody about uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center actually uh, reminds me, I had a discussion with an attorney with, uh, with the Southern Poverty Law Center last night who told me that this group, which, which they call CPL for short, um, has been in their crosshairs for a long time. In fact, when the, when the, when the LGBTQ plus practice group um, of the litigation arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center was first created in 2011, uh, the first case that they brought was actually against the CPL. Um, for their uh, involvement in, in some, uh, some developments in a different Minnesota school district. So, and what, um, was, what, what, was, what was that case about? I mean, what, were, what had they done to earn the uh, people going after them? So, um, so this involved, it was the, uh, the Anoka Hennepin um, school district, and they were enacting a policy that very closely mirrored, as it was explained to me, Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. Uh, which made a lot of headlines. Um, I was not personally aware that such legislation um, existed and predated the, the Florida bill. Um, so it's interesting to see how these, these things are kind of uh, cyclical. 
Yeah. So, so uh, Chris, I wanted um, to go back. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was oh, actually wanted to, say, to take us back uh, to the out front presentation, the one before um, the CPLs, the one that uh, was pro-LGBT and why they wanted to present originally. Um, you know what, that's, that's actually a very good question. Um, I have not addressed that in my reporting. I've been truthfully most focused on what happened during and subsequently um, afterwards after the CPL's presentation. Um, because that's the area where we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, school officials and, and the school board as well um, really targeting the rights of LGBTQ plus students along with their teachers, staff, and allies, um, with, including in ways that appear to violate the First Amendment rights and the uh, some statutory requirements in the state of Minnesota. Right. So, um, Aaron, were you at the presentation itself? Um, when the CPL presented to the school board, were you part of that group? And can you tell me what uh, what you heard them presenting and what your feelings were listening to it? Um, the CPL mostly presented about transgender students and talked a lot about, brought up a lot of, um, like, statistics about how a lot of transgender people detransition and how they can be like coerced into transitioning and was pretty much implying that anyone who's transgender was just like almost doing it for attention. And that was, that made like all of us very mad. The crowd was um, like heckling the CPL a lot. Rightly so. I mean, it's, it's, it, that's one thing that I think this has been characterized a little bit. I, I saw pieces in the local media and they were, you know, there was a little tone of, gee, this is just two, two sides to a, a conversation. And um, these so poor CPL people, you know, couldn't really give their peace because people kept heckling them. But when you're saying things that are attacking the group, that is there and very personal and they're such egregious lies, you're going to get a response. Um, what, how did you personally take it? What were your personal feelings around it? Um, personally, I felt like it was outrageous and unbelievable. I couldn't believe that the school would request something like that even after, because before the protest even happened and we knew that they were going to perform, uh, the GSA at my school, we were very open and upfront with the school board and the higher ups in the school about how much we didn't want them to present and how this wasn't helpful. But they had kind of an idea that they were just doing like, they were just presenting the other side and that this was supposed to be helpful for the school board. And the original outfront presentation was supposed to be for staff training. And the staff said that they needed, not the staff, the, um, like the people suggested that they needed another side to the training, and that's why CPL came on. Oh, geez. I mean, it, it's unbelievable that, that 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 nonsense that they're spouting would be characterized as, quote, unquote, training. Um, Aaron, certainly sitting in the audience with um, a lot of the kids from the school um, and a lot of kids who are trans or non-binary and, I mean, you know, they're at a stage that there is a certain degree of vulnerability. Did you see, or in the aftermath, have you talked to kids that 
really feel damaged from just even having to listen to that, even though everybody was obviously reacting and rejecting it, it's still the fact that it got oxygen. Um, did you see an effect of that? Uh, yeah, definitely. The whole uh, GSA that was there, and there was many other like community members there that support us. But um, we, after the fact, it was very like heartbreaking. It felt like we lost hope. Like we couldn't really, like we didn't really know what to do because this has been a very long running battle with um, Becker and the school about trying to get rights and be represented. And it just felt like we kind of had like they really kicked us when we were down. Yeah. It's uh, there, there's obviously an element in the community there that um, are feeling of, as part of that other side or, or at least uh, empathetic to it. And this is a question either for you, Chris, or, or for you, Aaron. Um, I understand mm-hmm. that the police chief, there was a piece in social media where some of the hate rhetoric of the community was, was listed in a, in a response to another social post. Somebody had put it up on their own social media, and the police chief, not the school, the police chief threatened students to take that down. Um, and the ACLU had to get involved. What was that about? Um, yeah, I know about that. It was a people were posting on social media about the protests and things like that, and of just other random, like the whole story about the things that happened with the school board. And they would get pulled out of class into the principal's office, and the police chief and the school officer would be there, and just threatening them indirectly just with the power that they held over them saying that they needed to delete it and that they couldn't post things like that about the school. And was it because, Aaron, was it because it, it was criticizing the school or because it was, it was, you know, exposing people who had bigoted comments? I believe it was because they were exposing the school. Okay. And, um, Chris, what was, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, that that's, emerged as a theme in a lot of the reporting I've done and speaking with sources is that a lot of the decisions by school board officials and, and officials of the high school um, seem to be designed around trying to reduce negative press coverage. Um, but that seems to be a, a huge motivating factor for them. As a matter of fact, um, the school board, I believe during its uh, May 2nd meeting, announced a new communication plan that severely restricts the circumstances under which uh, staff and teachers, um, as well as potentially students, can speak with members of the press. <laughs> so so, so uh, you, were, you were deemed the outsider that people shouldn't be talking to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, here, so here we go <laughs> in their face. Um, so, uh, Chris, and uh, along that same vein, after this presentation, um, a it sounds like the um, uh, CPL um, through a local attorney there, or and I don't know if they were necessarily related or just on the same side, but um, filed some sort of um, measure to to go after quote unquote information from the teachers in the school uh, regarding their support of that meeting, um, which seems incredibly draconian and like we're living in Russia or you know 
some oppressive state. Um, can you tell us what that was all about or is all about? Absolutely. Um, so uh, minor correction there. So the, the request um, statutorily, um, interested parties in Minnesota are able to file data requests, which um, especially of, of schools and school districts. Um, so the request was filed by Chris Clippen, who's an attorney. He is not actually affiliated directly with CPL. In fact, CPL uh, just told me uh, about an hour ago that they had no involvement whatsoever with, um, with Clippen's data request. Um, but as a result of the data request, the superintendent issued an email yesterday to all teachers and staff in the district schools, instructing them that they must collect and share by the end of the month a trove of materials and documents between February 1st and March 14th, which is the day of the, of the uh, school board meeting and the protest. Um, so this is a, a very wide-ranging request. So teachers and staff were notified that, that, uh, that the district was going to go through all of their emails, but additionally, uh, they are required to supply written correspondence, recorded information, or any communication with a very long list of different parties. Uh, which includes the Becker School Board members, uh, members of law enforcement, uh, legal counsel, public relations consultants, teachers, staff, news media, uh, and this is important, LGBTQ advocacy groups. So it gives you kind of a clue as to what they're looking for. Right. And, and the, so to underscore kind of the – oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Keep going. So to, to kind of underscore the importance of this, like – Circumstantially, and also as a result of a lot of these threats that people have faced, that students and teachers have faced over their participation in the protests, um, there is some real concern that the effort behind that the, the uh, purpose of this document request is to uncover evidence that they may have encouraged the students to attend the protest, possibly as a pretext for either uh, punishing or firing them. And let's let's just say carry that through. Let's say a teacher did talk to, got up in front of the class and said, gee, this is your era of civil rights. You guys should all go to this meeting and, um, you know, let your presence be known. What would the ramifications, let's say the teacher just walked out and said, yeah, I did that. Um, What are the ramifications? What what in the school board or school charter says that a teacher cannot encourage a group like that? So that's a really good question. Um, I spoke with an attorney at the ACLU who explained that um, for various reasons, uh, members of the school board during their meetings have pretty broad authority to prohibit certain kinds of protests, especially where they become disruptive and so on. But I I don't imagine that there would be anything to prohibit teachers from encouraging their students to, uh, you know, engage in free speech. Um, So it's a really good question. I mean, in terms of like, what could result from this if evidence was uncovered that the teachers were encouraging students to go to the protest. Um, You know, I I don't know that they could, that officials could fire them on those grounds, but I wonder if, um, you know, they could find some other reason to let them go or just make their lives miserable. Right. So it creates a blacklist. Right. Yeah. Um, Aaron, what what have people heard around the school? What is the reaction around the school of this um, email that went out? Um, It has affected a lot of the teachers that were supportive of the GSA, that it's 
Um, they're trying to, like anything, like he said, from like handwritten notes to pictures to videos, mm-hmm. emails of anything leading up to talking about the protest. But the protest was um, like organized by students and students went to it. It was just teachers that were there to support us that showed up. And the teachers feel really like, like they're being like, there's an abuse of power. Yeah, that, that, that definitely. I mean, it's very invasive and um, disturbing. It, it's particularly disturbing because it's being um, reacted to by this kind of, to, to Chris's point, this lone attorney that seems like he's doing it almost to, to cause trouble. Um, Chris, I, I'm not quite sure I get the leap between the attorney and the the head of the board, um, why they're adhering to it to such a level. So I'm sorry, I feel like I didn't fully explain that. So um, your suspicion was right that he is definitely ideologically aligned with CPL. I mean, he's a noted homophobe and transphobe, um, is what I'm hearing. And uh, also I've heard that he um, has expressed some very racist views in the past as well. Um, now, he, uh, he himself was a former member of the school board, and he was joined by another attorney who, again, ideologically linked to CPL but not officially affiliated with CPL um, in addressing the school board during that March 14th meeting and presumably was also very um, upset with the students, um, you know, for, for being there to protest and so on. Yeah. So, um, Aaron, I want to ask you just a little bit of a weird question, but uh, because it's part of my exposure to the whole situation, um, apart from, you know, Chris's excellent coverage in the L.A. Blade, which is obviously um, supportive of, of what you guys are going through, um, I watched sort of the local news um, on it in the area, and I, I found it uncomfortable, let me put it that way, the fact that it they seem to tow a little bit of the, well, gee, both sides should be able to talk um, tone. Um, what, was the, what was your reaction to the local news coverage uh, overall and, um, and uh, other people you know? What did they think of how this is being covered? Yeah, I feel like the, like, overall perception of it is that it's, like, the local media coverage was grossly neutral, they were very much um, not trying to put any opinions out there and very much trying to get both sides. And it felt um, very unfair because it's not like a two-sided issue. Yeah, it's, I mean, especially since the intent of the two presentations was dramatically different per Chris's point that the original one was a training, or I forget whether you or Chris made that, that the original was a training, and the, the second one was actually um, almost a, a rebuttal, um, which is, is very, very weird. Um, Aaron, in the school itself, because um, we were talking at the beginning of the show about um, kind of kids in other schools that are embracing pr- pretty disturbing um, bigotry and, and um, really almost throwback stuff. Um, are you seeing any elements of that in some of your peers? I mean, or is everybody pretty much kind of on the same side um, in the students, in the student body? 
the student body is uh, pretty divided. I would say there's very a lot of the kids in Becker came to the like a lot of the students came to the protest on support of the other side. We outnumbered them, but there were a lot of students there that um, were supportive of the CPL and every like one of the main problems in Becker is like the bullying and harassment that goes on towards like LGBTQ students. And it's been a long, long running issue that it's not a supportive community. Right. Well, can you, can you go into that a little bit more? What, what kind of things have you seen and experienced um, at the school itself before this even happened um, that showed that there's this, you know, anti LGBTQ action um, at, at play. Yeah, right. So there's a lot of the students will say like slurs or just name calling, laughing, like little things like that every day. And then if a teacher will hear it, a lot of times teachers won't stop it or they're on the kid's side or they'll laugh about it. And um, students have also like reached out uh, over Snapchat or Instagram, like any social media, and has just left like mean comments towards other people, especially about transgender people and pronouns, gender, things like that. There was a lot of kids were upset when they introduced gender neutral bathrooms. They thought it was unfair that we got another bathroom or they thought it was that we were being dramatic or that we were being disrespectful at the protest. And there's not a lot of kids. Um, the majority of kids aren't on our side at Becker. Oh, the majority or not? I would say, yeah, the majority. Well, do you, do you feel like there's a bridge to educate them through, I mean, I know this is kind of a nasty um, situation that's going on now, but do you see any room that um, in the end this could, could be a, a means to get some understanding from that, that group? Yeah, all we want, like, we don't want to fight with any of them. We just want to reach some sort of understanding. Like, if there was a way that we could somehow sit down and calmly communicate with the other side about our differences and how they feel, how we feel, I feel like there could be potential for us to reach some sort of understanding and they would, like, understand our cause and our feelings a little more. But the way it is, Becker's very small town, like, conservative. They're getting a lot of opinions from their parents. And I think it's really hard to change something like that, especially on an LGBTQ issue, something that they already don't take very seriously. Well, I, I hope so, because you, you sound phenomenal. And, you know, the kids that showed up at the, um, at the meeting um, seem, seem really great, actually. So I'm hoping that and there is kind of, kind of a philosophy from, you know, Harold back from Harvey Milk of, you know, it once once we're out, once they get to know us, that that softens a lot of those opinions because it's easier to have those kind of opinions about people who are theoretical than people that are right in front of you in flesh and blood. Um, so definitely hearts and minds going with you to make sure or help build that bridge. Um, Chris, I want to kind of throw that question, similar question to you. Where Where do you think this is going to go? Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, and I'm happy to get that, but actually, I'm sorry. Well, while it's on my mind, if I can ask Aaron a quick question, um, because oh, it has sure. to do with, um, with some of the, like, false equivalency, both sides nonsense we were talking about. 
So um, I understand, Erin, that, you, that you've attended at least one of these meetings um, after the March 14th incident um, with school board officials, and that during one of these meetings, uh, perhaps more of these meetings, um, the school board officials would say ridiculous things like, you know, be careful um, about asking for, uh, for us to protect you from bullying or protect LGBTQ students from bullying, because we're also hearing that your straight counterparts are being bullied. Um, by the queer students for, for example, not attending the protest or, you know, being labeled homophobes or transphobes. Um, I was hoping you could talk to me about that, talk about that, and then also I was curious whether you think that was kind of like rooted in inherent bigotry that he had or just this stupid idea about there being two sides to an issue to which there is not two sides. Um, that, that interaction actually happened in, uh, like more of a private meeting with just me and another student and a teacher and one of the board members. Um, one of the board members mm -hmm. said that cause we called for, um, more like action to be done when students were getting bullied because that was one of the issues that teachers would never really do anything and it just happened over and over again. And mm -hmm. when we said that it needs to be harsher and stricter and people need to do more, he, um, the, school, the school board members said that, um, well, you better be careful like what you wish for because if you want more enforcement, like we don't know what that would exactly mean. Like they came off a little bit like, well, be careful what you wish for because we could use that against you. <laughs> but I feel like it, I feel like he was trying to say, I don't think it came from a place of like bigotry, like hate. I feel like because earlier in the meeting, they um, expressed that they, as a school board member, a lot of things they can't do personally. And so they can just make the policies. They can't enforce them. And so I felt like they were trying to warn us about, if this gets placed, we can't control how it's enforced. And if the school, like, higher up, the people who do enforce it are already not quite on our side, they might, like, misuse any of the enforcement policies that we enact. Well, you know, that, that, that's, also, yeah. that's also another theme that has started to emerge as I talk with more people. Um, this whole idea that, like, that officials and, and some teachers and perhaps the school board um, we'll try to skirt around some of like the legal protections that might have been established in the Minnesota Safe and Supportive Schools Act and like, you know, try to get around, um, you know, uh, what am I trying to say? Basically trying to like circumvent rules and guidelines that, that protect uh, LGBTQ students. Right. I, I get the feeling, and this is part of my wonderment, um, because I, I get a feeling from the school board of not wanting to get involved. In other words, like, like wanting to, to, like they'd like to end this whole issue, not even solve it. They don't even want, you know, it's like, they, it's like fine, we're, we'll give LGBTQ kids their, their rights, but just let's not talk about it anymore. And this, this, um, this request by um, Clippen uh, seems to go the other direction where they're really – going in deep and personal and making it even bigger issue um, by, by sending out that email and wanting all that right. thorough data. I mean, that's, that there are ways, you know, if, if somebody comes and asks you for a piece, for information, there are ways of fulfilling that legally getting across that 
satisfies them, then it doesn't necessarily dig in all that deep. Um, it, it's like there seems to be some leeway there on how deep they had to do it, and they're taking it, from what it sounds like, to a pretty deep level. Um, so I'm kind of baffled by that. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, uh, Aaron, of course, could speak more to this than I can, but, but this also follows, um, you know, a month and a half of uh, repeated interactions whereby the school board officials, uh, school board and officials at the school um, have requested apologies from students who protested or made veiled threats, as Aaron was saying, um, of possible retaliation or punishment. Um, so given that context, it, it seems a little less out of the blue and a little clearer what right. the ultimate aim is. And Aaron, have you seen those requests for, for apologies or, you know, shaming students for, for having voiced their opinions? Um, I haven't. I No one has said anything directly, which I don't think they could if they wanted to, but it's kind of the understanding that they want an apology. They think they deserve an apology. And especially after, right after the March 14th protest, two school board members resigned. And it's widely understood that they resigned because they were being, they were embarrassed by how they were being represented in the media. And they believed that teachers um, that showed up to the protest and potentially students should be punished for taking part in it. Wow. Weird, weird. Yeah, it's, and that was one of the things in the media piece that I saw that of local coverage where the reporter who was there really characterized it and the tone that he gave it was like, you know, oh, those poor people presenting, they barely could get their points out. And, you know, it, it, there was this, this completely apologetic tone about it um, without any kind of sense of understanding what why that was offensive and difficult. Um, so, Chris, what um, – I'm sure you're going to continue following this. Um, did the school give you any indication of what they plan to do with this data? And um, I know that people are feeling very oppressed by it. Um, have you gotten – has that been uh, confirmed by the school that that is kind of uh, a direction this could go in? So I'll tell you, I will keep, um, <laughs> I promise you, I'm going to keep pastoring these people. Um, I've reached out to the superintendent, the school board, um, I reached out to Clippin. Um, I've not heard back yet, but I'm going to keep harassing them um, because not only do I feel like it warrants a response on the basis of the possibility that it is intended as retribution for endorsing the protest, but also because the, the amount of time that it's going to take for teachers and staff to comply with this request, um, I would imagine to be uh, really considerable, uh, potentially taking their right. time away from teaching, you know? Yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 absolutely. Because it, first of all, to go back and document something you had no plans on documenting alone is an effort. I mean, and it's, and it's like having to do your taxes and go find all the receipts you know, for the last year. I mean, it's, it's, it is a, a really ridiculous, um, oppressive act just because they're putting you through that task alone. Um, yeah, so uh, wild. Brody, did you have any um, questions you wanted to ask on this? I mean, the main thing that I'm, you know, kind of concerned about and worried about, and I will direct this to our young guest, 
looking at the current situation in the school, do you see a danger for the bullying to escalate? And do we see a danger of maybe harm coming to some of our LGBTQ youth in that school district? Definitely. Um, There has already been districts around us that have banned pride flags or any like safe space stickers on doors or anything that even hinted at being LGBTQ or even supporting it, like um, helplines and things like that that mention LGBTQ have already been taken down in some school districts around us. And there has been talk of that happening this summer in our school district. I don't know if that's confirmed, but they've definitely done things like that before where they've um, people in the community have brought up how teachers having pride flags in classrooms like divides student body and creates tension and it's inappropriate to have pride flags and things. And they are definitely going to keep pushing ideas like this and it's, it's going to keep going. And I feel like it will get more dangerous for students, especially as they, as students that are against us can see that the school is like kind of on their side, they're going to feel a lot more supported and not very, discouraged from bullying or harassing any of us. Let me follow that up real quickly. My understanding was that uh, you folks had a meeting uh, with the Attorney General of the state of Minnesota, and he wasn't as affirming as it could have been. Were you aware of that meeting with uh, Mr. Ellison or no? Yes, I was there. And what was your take on how the Attorney General approached the subject matter, especially given that he's a person of color and a Muslim? Um, I felt like he understood us. He definitely wanted us to keep fighting. He wanted us to persevere and um, fight the school board. And But it also, he just kind of said a lot of things that we've heard before. Um, he told us about, uh, like, what we could do in the situation, um, about like the legality of what the school was actually doing. And it's, he said it was all free speech. Um, And I thought it was, I felt like it was a good meeting. Like it was very motivational. He wanted us to do well and succeed, but it wasn't very like informational. He didn't provide a lot. Okay. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, um, one final question. Do you know, uh, has there any other students in the school who um, are not out, um, but um, are dealing with their own um, sexual orientation or gender um, questions within themselves that have confided to you um, that they are in that situation? And if so, what, is this, what has been the effect on those people? Yeah, definitely. There's a, a lot of students at Becker are not wanting to join in the fight because they don't want to be like ostracized by the community. They don't want attention drawn on them, which I can completely understand if they're from a household or anything that would be dangerous for them to come out in any way. And so I'm in a very good, I'm in a very lucky position where it's okay for, it's okay for me to be out and I can be a spokesperson for these people that don't have a voice for themselves. And they've said a lot of like just things they've heard in the halls of people calling them like slurs and not respecting pronouns and stuff. And so they feel like they can't come out because people wouldn't take them seriously based on other things they've seen. And they, they feel 
I've, like, the overwhelming this from LGBTQ and Becker is that there's not a lot of hope. Like, people really feel like nothing's going to change. Uh, that's scary. And um, thank you for being you because what you are doing and who you are is so vitally important. And I'm telling you this, that, that you know, those, those kids need you. They need you to do, be you and, and, and be out there um, because the darkness when they're alone is scary. And you are a beacon that will help them. Uh, so really, um, you're, you you're the hero so in the picture. No, thank you. And um, that is, we are pretty much out of time. Um, Chris, uh, thank you so much for your work on the blade and the story. We look forward to hearing more about it. Um, Brody, thank you for everything you do in the blade. And Aaron, um, you know, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for, for being there in the thick of it. And, um, you know, please keep, keep making noise, um, keep communicating. Uh, you do it ex- exceptionally, exceptionally well. Um, Chris, yeah, we've got, thank you. Uh, our, our absolute pleasure. We've got like uh, two minutes left. What, what are your final words? Well, um, I suppose if I can take a stab at answering your earlier question about where I potentially see this going, um, and it's a hard question because a lot will depend on the outcome of this document request, right? But one thing that the lawyers that I talked to were very clear about is, if, um, is about this issue of prohibiting students from displaying things like pride pins and that kind of free expression. That's not really a murky area in terms of the law. So, like, unless it's disruptive to learning or unless it, like, includes hate speech or calls to violence, you can't ask somebody to not display a pride pin on their person. Um, So, potentially, one way that I could see this going is leading to some kind of litigation. Um, But it's hard to tell. Hard to tell. Well, we will be there fighting uh, for it um, to turn out well should it go that direction, although scary things happen in the courts now, too. So it's, it's all corruption. But, um, you know, uh, that makes all the work of everybody on this call, um, everybody, on this, everybody on the show, even more important because it is not a time to be silent um, as we feel this oppression and um, – we look to resolve it. Um, no easy answers, and the fight is ongoing. So anyway, I would like to thank um, our guests again for being here. I would like to thank our listeners for tuning in again this week. Um, we will be back again next week with a really fantastic show. Brody, who helps line up the show, might have a clue what it is. I do not. But I do know that it's going to be terrific and you need to listen to it. Please tell your friends to subscribe. And that is it for this installment from those of us at Rated LGBT Radio. We'll talk to you again soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 